Uh, So let's pray. We're in Matthew chapter 22, continuing through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, as we uh, continue to look at this this last week of Jesus' life, Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate the meaning of this text. Father, that you would um, help us to gain a, a, a greater appreciation, greater understanding of what Christ did on our behalf, um, that he suffered, he died uh, for our sins, Lord, to, to provide a way that we could uh, be restored into a relationship with you. Uh, Father, I pray that you would give us understanding as we look at this uh, third parable of Christ uh, here at the Temple Mount. Uh, we love you, Lord. We praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent out his slaves to call on those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm and another to his, own, to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you can find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him, him, bind him hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen." And Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now. In Christ's good name we pray, amen. All right, so this, as we we look at Matthew 22, this is a continuation uh, from from the temple story. We we know that this is where things begin to get blurry on what day we're on. Um, Chapter 21 begins on Sunday, mid-morning, afternoon, uh, the Sunday before the crucifixion of Christ. By the end of chapter 22, as we correlate the various gospel accounts, we know that we're on Wednesday prior to the crucifixion, and then there's two extended sermons in chapter 23 and chapter 24, and then we pick up at 25, the the continuation of the last, the week before the crucifixion. And so some, this seems, it could be a case for Monday, some thinks that this is on Wednesday, it's, I don't know how important that is, but Sunday started with the, um, the a triumphal entry where Jesus goes into the temple, he rides the donkey into the hill, people are 
waving their palm branches. They're, they're welcoming the Messiah. They're excited about his coming. He then walks into the temple. He, he goes inside to the court of the Gentiles where the money exchangers were. They shouldn't have been there. And he begins kicking over tables, uh, really causing a scene, cleansing the table, saying, this is my father's house. You're a den of ro- it's a den of robbers. It should be a house of prayer. He leaves that day. And then he returns the next day. As, as they're approaching, there's the fig tree that shows all the signs of life. Uh, there's, there's good leaves on the tree. There should have been something edible. But when he approached and got closer to it, uh, th- there was no fruit. And so he curses the tree. The tree dies. And really, this story of the fig tree, it, it overshadows this, this whole account uh, the fig tree was a picture of Israel, it was a picture specifically of the religious leaders in the temple that had all of these big leaves. Uh, it was a huge building. This building was the largest building in human history at the time. Uh, it was a place where great sacrifices were happening. All of the externals were there, but there was no spiritual fruit uh, on the tree. And so Jesus goes into the temple on Monday morning. He's there teaching. He's interrupted by the priest and the elders. And they're asking him, by what authority or whose authority are you teaching? And so Jesus asks him a question. He says, I'll answer your question if you answer me my one question to you. And they're like, okay, sounds fair. So they, Jesus asked them, by whose authority did John the Baptist come? And so they had a little discussion amongst themselves. Uh, it reminds me of... Uh, the family feud when the family all gets together and they huddle around and one person spits out their answer. They're going back and they say, well, if we, if we say that, that John was here by God's authority, then he's going to turn that on us because if, it's, if he was uh, speaking and preaching and doing his works by God's authority, then that means we need to humble ourselves and sort of acknowledge that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. But if we say that he was in his own power, they were afraid of the people and the people viewed John the Baptist, who was dead at this point, they viewed him as a prophet. And so they were sort of in a dilemma. And so they come to Jesus and they say, we, we can't answer the question. And Jesus says, fine, I'm not going to answer your question. And then from there, that setting, he goes into three parables. We've looked at two. We looked at these two last week. There was a parable of the two sons. The one son basically says, uh, the father comes and says, hey, kids, boys, you have to go do some work in the vineyard today. And the first boy says, no, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. And then by the end of the day, this, the kid says, you know what, I felt really guilty about this. I need a, the word is actually repent to change his mind, and he goes to work in the vineyard. The second son says, sure, dad, I'll go work in the vineyard. I'll be there all day. I'll work from sunrise to sunset. And as soon as his dad leaves, he basically never goes to the vineyard. And so Jesus asks them the question, which son did the will of the father? So they naturally answer the first son. And Jesus then turns that parable to show them how Israel has been commissioned by God to basically be the light of the world, to go about the Father's business. They, they give, yes, Father, will do that, but they're not. And then he says, tax collectors and prostitutes, they will actually enter the kingdom of heaven because they responded to John the Baptist and that they, when confronted by him, they believed and they followed after. Then he went from there to the parable of the, the vineyard, uh, the vine workers, that this man who owned the vineyard he, he took a, a number of years to kind of get it up and running. He put in everything you need for a vineyard. Uh, he leaves. He, he leases the land to the vine growers. Uh, f- uh, speculated about five years later is what it would take to, get a, to, to have the, the, vine, the vineyard 
um, up and running. And so he goes back, he sends some servants and says, hey, you need to pay your rent now that the, the land is producing. And so they say, no, they, you know, they, beat, they beat him, they stoned him, and they killed another of the servants. Then uh, word gets back to the owner, so he sends another batch of servants. They do the same thing. Finally, he says, you know what, I'm going to send my son. They'll respect my son. And when the son arrived, they say, hey, this is the heir. If we kill him, this land will become ours. And so they kill the son. And by the end of the story, the, the, the priest and the elders, they understood that Jesus was talking about them, that they had hijacked God's temple. They had hijacked what God had sort of entrusted them with. And so Jesus then says, listen, you can either be broken by the rock or your life can be broken on the rock so that you can be built up in it. But what you've been given is going to be given to somebody else. And there's sort of this prophecy um, not that Israel, not, not, we're not talking about replacement theology where the church has replaced Israel, but that the church would sort of be given the responsibility for, for this time. It's not saying that God's done with Israel, but there's sort of this foreshadowing that said, you've missed it, you've rejected me, and now something new is going to be established. And so it's from this setting that Jesus continues. Some would think that this is a different day. I don't really know. Um, we can't tell from Matthew. And so in verse 1, we read, um, Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Um, so we learn that here Jesus is speaking. He's going to continue in a parable. A parable is an earthly story. Uh, there, it's it's going to be a story that, that people can relate to, clearly understand. But then as the story sort of unfolds, there's a huge spiritual implication behind it. Uh, throughout Jesus' ministry, sometimes he used parables to hide the truth from those who weren't listening to him or, or were not open to the things of God. Um, and to those who believed, it would give greater truth. In this case, uh, in these last, this is the third of these parables, it's given to, to make this object lesson uh, to, to really condemn these leaders of the temple. Um, all three of these parables are parables where the finish line is the importance. It's clearly not the beginning. It's how the, it's how the story finishes. Uh, the prostitutes and tax collectors started poorly, but by the end of the story, they responded, and God cared about that. Um, so now he's going to expand on this kingdom of heaven all through Matthew, the, the, is about the king, the Messiah who's come on scene. He's present. Jesus is continually teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast uh, for his son. Uh, this is beautiful. Uh, but before we sort of continue down this path, I just want to pause and when Jesus says, if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, if you want to know what my kingdom is about, the closest human picture that I can paint for you is imagine this king, uh, the most wealthy person that they would know, that had the utmost resources. The, the, the person that that man cares about the most is his son. And now his son is getting married. Now, in this story, there's no development of of the bride or groom or this actual marriage that's taking place between these two individuals, the, the whole emphasis is on this party. Uh, weddings are amazing. 
I, like, I love, as a pastor, I feel like I'm a wedding crasher. I get to go, like, if I know the people, it's one thing. It's a whole other thing when it's like somebody invites me, hey, would you mind, uh, we have a wedding coming up, would you mind, like, joining us and, and doing this ceremony? And I'll show up at some weddings, I don't have a soul, I don't know who anybody is, like, I'll, like, I'll kind of get to know them, but I'll enjoy the meal, I'll enjoy the whole ceremony, often it becomes a date night for me and Anna, and it's like, we're just, we're just, it's, it's, like, I don't even know the people, and I'll start, like, crying during the ceremony, because it's just this beautiful expression of these two people making wonderful vows with one another, it's a celebration for the whole, that really is one of the pinnacles in any family for one of their children to get married, it's, it's, it's the, the party of all parties, and Jesus said, if you want to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like a party. You know, last night I was at a party. Pete here, Pete turned 90 years old. And so they threw, his family threw, so I guess you clap for 90, you know. The, uh, so back in July, I get a message from one of his family members. And they say, hey, Gunnar, can you call me? Really, I need to talk to you. And normally when that happens, it's, uh-oh, somebody's sick, somebody died, something and so I remember we're on vacation at Lake Tahoe at the little fish farm. And so I'm like, hey, hey, is everything okay? He's like, yeah, grandpa's turning 90 and we're going to have a surprise party. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we'll be there. That's good. That's what, this is the kind of, I need to talk to you right away. And so the whole party's developing. Last night we're there. It's mariachis and just all kinds of excellent food. Uh, you know, it's all family except for my family. So I kind of feel like this story where I'm the, the people from the highways and the byways coming in just to celebrate. Really wonderful time of joy and expression of love. And, and Jesus looks at, looks at the kingdom of heaven and he says, you know, guys, the kingdom of heaven is a great place filled with joy, excitement. It's like a wonderful party. And so now he continues in verse 3. And he says, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. Okay, so things were sort of similar as they are in today's culture, uh, a little bit different. Um, they didn't have the technology to invite people. They didn't have refrigeration, the, the, the preparation that goes into um, the events of a wedding, especially a, a wedding of this magnitude. Um, the picture he's describing, I, I have to look at my notes here because Anna already scolded me because I don't really follow kings and queens and their parties. And uh, I mix things up, but Prince William and Kate got married a few years ago. And, and uh, so their wedding, there were 1,900 people were invited. Uh, my conversion, it says it was about 20 million pounds, which is about $26 million was spent for this party. You don't just whip that over like, you don't just say, hey, we're going to throw a party tonight. There's a lot of preparation that needs to get made. Um, and so here in verse 3, it says, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited. So, so the people that are in question, and just in case some of you are like me, uh, I don't do very well reading uh, minds of people. I do much better at reading the newspaper. So I want to make it nice and obvious to you. The people who are invited in this parable, it's Israel. So Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, the priests and the elders. He's talking about the whole system of religion that had gotten off course uh, from how God had intended it. And Jesus is now scolding them. And so this invitation uh, is, is, has already gone out. It's sort of, in our culture, is, 
you know, what I've noticed about weddings is uh, the big ones, you'll get a little postcard. And that little postcard tells you, hey, save the date. We're not even asking for an RSVP at this time. Just just go in your calendar like five years down the road and block off that date, and, and we're going to have a wedding. Okay, that's round one. I got the card. Then, there's the next, then it's like the fatter envelope comes, and it's like, please RSVP by this date because we have to pay like $700 per person at the dinner table, so we want to know exactly who's going to come here because we don't want to pay extra money for extra food. And so you click the little box, and you write in how many people you're going to bring, and it's like, <laughs> party's on you. And so you, uh, you send it back, and so you know that when the wedding comes, you have a time to eat, and then you show up at the wedding day. So now, and during this, it sort of worked the same way, except there wasn't a date per se. Um, there's no refrigeration. There's weather to consider. And, oh, there are weddings. It wasn't just a one-night gig. This was uh, anywhere from seven days to 14 days, depending on the person throwing the party, like how long could the party last for? And so you would, you would reply, yes, I want to come to this party. And this is the king celebrating a, a party for his son. This is, if you happen to get invited to Prince William and Kate's wedding, I would probably decline, but my wife probably would not let me decline if we <laughs> happened to get invited to something of that magnitude. This is a huge deal. You would write, yes, absolutely, I want to go. And so they say, well, just, just be ready, because when the time comes, we'll let you know when everything is prepared. And it, this culture, the ancient Middle East, and really the Middle East today and a lot of other cultures, they're not so bound by the clock and calendar. It's, messengers would come and say, hey, the party's ready, show up tomorrow. And you'd show up and you'd begin the, the celebration. And so these guys, they go out uh, he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited, the people who had RSVP'd. They'd said they'll be there. And they were unwilling to come. And so now there's this rejection, not of people who were, that, that never said, they wasn't like they said, oh, I'm not going to come. These are people who had responded, yes, I'll come, I'll be there. You can count on me as you make your preparations. And then as the preparations were made, they basically were unwilling to come. They ignored the messengers. This is unheard of. Uh, this isn't just a, a party. This is, this is not polite. It's not wise. This is the king. Uh, the king during those times uh, would be a sort of a, a vengeful person. It could not go very well for your health if you ticked him off. And so now all of these people, they say, we're not willing to come. This big party has been established. Everything's ready to go. And in verse 4, we see this this wonderful king. Uh, this king is the father in heaven. To see how kind, how gracious he is. Look at verse 4. All of these people just shunned him. And so it says, again, he sent out his other slaves, telling those who had been invited, behold, I have prepared my, my dinner. I almost said binner, but it's it really this word in the Greek. There's, there's two Greek words for meals. They only ate two meals. There would be one uh, they would wake up at sunrise, and then they would work until about 9 or 10, and then they would have their first meal, and then they would work until sunset, and then after sunset, they would have their second meal. This word here is for the first meal, so it really could be translated breakfast or brunch, saying, hey, the, and, and what this is saying in, in layman's terms is like, hey, guys, the party's already set. 
the, um, what is it? The, I'm, now I'm going to try to think of fancy food, and I'm blanking on fancy food. Um, <laughs> the McGriddles are ready. Uh, the, the Egg McMuffins and, uh, you know, oh, Eggs Benedict, that's a fancy one. And, and, and the champagne's ready. There's fresh food. Everything's set. It's here. The, the calf has been slaughtered. Um, all the food, it's just going to go to waste. Come, enjoy the party. Don't, just come. It's no skin off my back. He's graciously reinviting them to the wedding feast. Like nobody would say no to the king. And then if they did, for the king to respond in this sort of grace is a beautiful thing. And remember the picture here that Jesus is trying to get them and us to see is the nature and character of, of God in heaven. That he's so merciful, he's so kind. You could have rejected God a, a thousand times in your lifetime, and he's saying, come, come, come. I, I, I want to let you experience this fellowship with me. And in verse 5, we see that they go with this message of the king. But they paid no attention, and they went on their way to their own farm and another to his businesses. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. So as the slaves go out this time, there's, there's two categories of people. Uh, there's the first, which are really the apathetic ones, that as they come back with the message, they're like, oh, I'm busy with work, I'm at the office, I'm working the farm, I'm doing my own thing. I, I really don't care. Uh, this seems to be a picture of, of, of the secular, you know, the secular Jews, not the very religious, they, they just... They, religion's that thing that happens over there. And if you look at history, really the secular people really could care. They're not really hostile towards, um, towards the things of God. Then there's a second group, which seems to be the religious ones. Those, um, if you follow like major things over history, it's often the religious people, those following a false religion that are waging a war against um, religious groups um, and so this group, they didn't just sort of ignore the message. They took, uh, they took the messengers, and we see that they seized them, they mistreated them, and they killed them. Huge, huge insult to the king. This is r- really uh, pricking the beast sort of thing. Um, and so in verse 7, the king hears about this, and he is enraged. And he sends his armies, and he destroyed those murderers, and he set the city on fire. So remember, this is the, the, the bigger picture here. Jesus is telling the parable. He's telling this story to these, the, the priests and the elders of Israel. And, and he's showing this parable to condemn them, to show them the error of their, their ways. And in this parable, Jesus gives a prophecy. This is a prophecy in, in parable form where he says he talks about the city being burned down. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he's talked about this temple that would be destroyed. Forty years uh, from the date of Jesus' speaking here, the temple would be destroyed. Uh, uh, if, you go, if you go to Israel today, you know, start saving. We're going to go again in about two and a half years. But there's parts where you can see the temple wall where the, where the huge stones have been knocked down. They, they haven't repaired them, so you can see the rubble. Um, Forty years from that day, in A.D. 70, 
Jerusalem would be burnt and destroyed to the ground. Um, Titus Vespian, a Roman general, he would come to Jerusalem, he would conquer the city, and he would murder over a million people. Um, Josephus, who is this great Jewish historian, he was an eyewitness to these accounts. And this is what he writes. It's been translated from his work. And he describes this day that Israel was, was burnt to the ground by fire. Uh, that building, the temple at Jerusalem. However, God long ago had sentenced to the flames, but now in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived. The tenth month, the tenth of the month loose, the very day which previously it had been burned by the king Babylon, one of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor fear, filled, filled with horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted it up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through the golden window. When the flame arose, a scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews. Now that, now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, lady and priest alike, were massacred. The emperor had ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed to the ground, except only the highest towers and that part of the wall that had enclosed the city on the west, which is the, the part that we know as the western wall today, um, that was spared. And Jesus says this in this parable. He says the king is so angry, he sent out his troops. He, he exercised justice on those people who had murdered his servants and that the city would be set on fire. So he's furious. This is all in the preparation. You know, he says he does this in the midst, which wouldn't have been a big deal for the king to do in the midst of his, his son's uh, big wedding party. And now what's he going to say? What's he going to do? He says in verse, what's he, uh, uh, verse 8, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready. Hey, we still got a party. My son is still getting married. What, what are we going to do? Where are we going to get the guests from? They've, they've rejected this offer. But the party's ready to go, so let's get some people. He said, those who were invited were unworthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Like the party set, just go out to the roads. Go out to every which way, every place that you can find. It reminds me of me and Anna's wedding, or Anna and I's wedding. I forget which way it goes, but I'm married. And, and when we were in the process of, of figuring out how we were going to go about getting married, we're like, oh, let's just go elope. And it's like, oh, my dad's a pastor. We can't just elope. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, so your dad's going to do the ceremony. And then, uh, so then who are we going to invite? We didn't want to have a big, we didn't want to have a big ordeal about the whole thing. And so we're like, well, we can invite this person, this person, this person. But then we're like, well, what about that person, that person, that person? And then by the end of the day, we're like, how about we just make posters and we go out and just start stapling to them to the, I don't think we actually did that, but that's sort of the process that we followed. I, this week, I learned of one pastor who, uh, 
without telling his wife, he was in the same dilemma. So what he did in his voicemail, he just, hey, if you've called my cell phone, um, I just want you to know uh, I'm going to get married in two weeks on this day at this location. If you're hearing this, you're invited. And so his wife found out the hard way that is like you, she called him and she heard the message. Like, Wait, you're leaving a message that anybody who calls you? And the guy's like, yeah, we had the secretary from waste management company show up. And, <laughs> and uh, um, uh, th- th- this is, he's just saying, let's just go invite whoever to come to this party. The gates had been opened. Um, when I was in, when I first joined the Navy, I was literally, I'd been in the Navy for less than six months. I had made it through boot camp, and now I was waiting to go to SEAL training, but I'm on the East Coast, and I, I was really a nobody just trying to, to stay out of trouble, which I was really bad at doing, or I was really good, I was really good at getting in trouble. And, and so I was sort of, it was mid-morning, and a, and a speaker announcement came through the PA system, and I hear Seaman Hansen, that's me, uh, back then I was nobody on the totem pole, please come to the commanding officer's office right now. And I'm like, what did I do? Like, I'm scrolling through my brain, trying to think of all the things that I'd done. And I knew that a number of the things that I'd done recently had sort of, they'd cleared out of the queue. Like, they're no longer, like, pending uh, trouble. And so I show up at the skipper's office, and I'm like, yes, sir, you called for me? Maybe it was an accident? And he's like, can you explain to me why I'm getting a phone call from Admiral Tony Less asking for me to have Seaman Hansen call him at his convenience. And I look, I'm like, sir, that's, um, that was my dad's buddy from the Naval Academy. I have no idea what's going on. And he's like, pick up the phone right now and call him. So I'm in the skipper's office. Is this Admiral Les? No, it's his secretary who's like a super high-ranking person. Uh, this is Gunnar Hansen. How, I, I was told to call at my convenience. I don't know what's going on. And like, oh, Admiral Les is retiring in two weeks, and you're invited to the party, and you can bring, you're, you're allowed a plus one. And, and I remember being on the phone saying, should I, should I come in uniform? I'm not sure how this works. And they're like, no, it would probably be a bad idea if you showed up in uniform. So you need to you go to the store, buy something with a collar and a tie, and like 18-year-old gunners trying to figure out how, I don't know, I pulled off a tie, like I remember thinking it was breaking the bank to buy a tie and a collared shirt, and I was really kind of frustrated with it. And my buddy and I, we show up to this ceremony in our civilian clothes, and all these, like, Marines are saluting us, and we're just like, you know, we get down, we walk on this aircraft carrier in the very front row. Uh, we're with the Admiral's family, like a part of his party. Then afterwards, we're whisked off to his private residence, and we're just, you know, eating the shrimp, just kind of living like kings going, this, the guys aren't going to believe this when they hear about this tomorrow at work. This is the closest, like, in my life, the closest I can imagine to, the, to, to what's happening here. Um, there was a story a few years ago of a lady. Uh, she used to be homeless. It was in the Boston Globe back in the 90s, so you know, I did some digging. Actually, this is a, an illustration that's used in a lot of different places. Uh, this lady was a homeless lady, and she got off the streets through going to homeless shelters, and she got into the business world, and she became very successful. Uh, she eventually was engaged. And her and her fiance uh, staged this, uh, this, this big wedding. They, they had put a, a $13,000 deposit down for this, this banquet hall. Uh, and, and as the invitations were going out, uh, her fiance got cold feet and walked away from, from the wedding. And so she 
she went to the, the whoever's in charge of the banquet hall and the money that they had paid, and the lady was really kind to this woman. It, it turns out that she had actually, her spouse, her fiance had walked away at the altar from her, so she was really sympathetic. And she said, but I hate to tell you, um, the most we can refund is $1,300. Um, because everything's been set in motion. And so the lady, I guess, thought about it for a couple of days, and she went back and she said, you know what, I, I came from a homeless shelter, and I want to I throw a party for those uh, in the homeless shelter. And so in this article, what is written, she says, recalling her sheltered roots, she decided to have the banquet anyway and to invite all of Boston, particularly Boston's homeless, to join her. In honor of the former groom, this is the only reason I'm reading this, uh, she changed the menu to boneless chicken. And so on a warm summer night, those who had previously been dining on dumpster fare were enjoying the chicken cordon bleu. And so this, that's a picture of what's happening in this story. God or Jesus is telling these leaders, you've been invited, yet you're rejecting me. And since you've rejected me, this is going to be opened up to so many more people. And so they go out to the highways, to the byways. Um, the highways, verse 9 here, the byways, as many people as you can invite to the wedding feast, just invite everyone. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all that they had found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner, dinner guests. Um, and I want to point out that as we look at this, so, so now you have good and you have evil people who are invited. They're welcomed in. There are those who had RSVP'd who rejected the invitation. The only distinction as we continue through the story between those who are the chosen ones and the unchosen ones are those, the chosen are those who responded to the invitation. The unchosen ones are those who rejected. That's the only difference between these categories of people. You were, if you were there and enjoyed this party, it's because you responded to the call. And so this great party happens. Verse 10, the slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, uh, both good and evil, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Um, I know that when I was there at Admiral Les's like party, it was, it was actually, it was, they were very kind and very loving to me, and I, I didn't know him from anybody, but apparently he and my dad had gone back many years before, and so I was there just kind of like enjoying the party, eating the shrimp, and, and I, the story I told my buddies the next day was like, oh, dude, it was awesome. We were just like kicking back, eating shrimp, doing all this stuff, and we were just, we dominated the house, and the reality is... Like, you heard me just tell a story a little bit. The reality is we all kind of sat there kind of like eating our shrimp, kind of like, I don't want to get in trouble. Which fork do I use? Like, I, I, like, like, I just don't want to get in trouble. I don't want this to get back to my dad that I, like, really messed something up. And so there's people who are invited in. Like, I, like okay, I've turned the page, so I've already forgotten the prince and his wife, um, I see, I hear Kate plus eight. Is that a television show or something? <laughs> like, you know, like the king and queen. So I've already forgotten who they are. But, it, but if I was invited to something like that, I would just feel stuffy. I would feel uncomfortable. I wouldn't know, like, I wouldn't know how to respond in that environment. And so now you have all these people feeling that same way. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, I don't know if you guys know who she is. When she was a young girl, she was paralyzed in a diving accident. 
And she tells a story concerning this parable uh, using the picture of her wedding day. And it's really, it's an emotional thing to read. Uh, She was paralyzed and then met her husband. And so she got married as a paraplegic. And in one of her writings, she writes this, sharing about this parable and how she felt on her wedding day. She said, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corsetting and binding my body gave me a perfect shape. The dress just didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and I noticed that I'd accidentally run over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off center on my lap. And my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in front. There he was, standing tall and stately in his former attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look up the aisle. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away all my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. How easy it is for us to think that we're utterly unlovely, especially to someone as lovely as Christ. But he loves us with the bright eyes of a bridegroom's love and cannot wait for the day we are united with him forever. It's a beautiful like illustration she tells describing this banquet hall. So here are these unworthy, both good and evil, or evil and good people are, who are sitting there now as guests of the king, filling a part of his family, even though they're not at all. It's beautiful. And Jesus is trying to make the, the picture of his, the, the banquet feast that's going to happen with the Messiah. This contrast between Israel and the prostitutes and the tax collectors that was seen previously in Matthew 21 and 32. Jesus said there just a, just a couple parables earlier that the religious ones had re- rejected his message, but these, the least of them, had responded by believing and that they would be there in the kingdom. And then at verse 43 of the last chapter, after the telling of the parable of the, the vineyard workers who tried to take the vineyard hostage, He says, therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And so again, in this this parable of this kingdom feast, this great party, Jesus says, Israel, who was entrusted with this message, had rejected the message and they've been set aside and new guests will be brought in to celebrate this, this wonderful party. And like I said, none of this, the distinction between Israel and these new guests, it had nothing to do with their works. It had to do with their responding to the invitation. Uh, Paul makes this case in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is the part I'm getting to. He goes on to say, such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. This is a beautiful picture. These people who are worthless are now in the presence of this great feast. And in this feast, there are conditions. The story's going to shift. The scene is shifting to this guy who is a wedding crasher. This guy shows up. He gets in. He's, he's participating. But for the king, it was very obvious that he had not gone through the order. Everybody was welcome in. But to be invited in, there clearly was protocol. There was a means for how you came in. So verse 11, but when the king came to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there that was not dressed in wedding clothes. He said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? Now, it's great if you read commentaries. There's all sorts of discussion. Now, was the king supposed to provide the wedding clothes or did the people have access to these wedding clothes? Nobody knows anything about these wedding clothes. They'd say, oh, the king would provide this. But then when they, they look through the history books, um, there's no evidence that supports that. The, the closest thing I can imagine to this is uh, the few times I've been invited to be a groomsman and, you know, they say, hey, I want to be your best man. And when you're between like 18 and 25 and these offers come in, it's like, oh, that's really great. But then the next thought is like, oh, I, I got to be in a tux. And then there's sort of the, the, the ping pong ball, who pays for that tux? <laughs> Do I got to pay for the tux? Like I'm being invited to participate in this wedding. I think he should pay for my, like it's not my party, it's his party. I think he should pay for my tux. And a couple of times they have paid for my tux. Like that seems like that seems to be. I'm not trying to set the standard here. But it's sort of like you can't show up as a groomsman and not be in a tux. So everybody will get a tux. Whether you, like I had to pay for it or it was given to me. But most times it's been given to me. So I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble if you're a best man and you didn't provide the like We just did away with the bridesmaids and grooms. Just my, that's my answer. Um, but way off subject. And it's, so whatever the situation, this guy's standing there. He doesn't have his wedding clothes on. The king says, how did you get in here not dressed properly? Now, the guy doesn't come back and say, oh, you know, my wife took my wedding garments to the cleaners, and, or I forgot them, or I didn't have time. Like, he stands there speechless, which is implying his guilt. Everybody had access to these clothes, but this man decides to go about things in his own way. Now, I, I keep thinking of Peter at the, at the Lord's Supper. When Jesus gets down and he begins to wash the feet, and Peter says, no, not you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, you have no business with me. Then Peter says, well, if you're going to wash my feet, then wash my whole body. And Jesus says, no, the rest of your body is clean. It's just your feet. You're not going to dictate to me how things go. And that seems to be the indication here that, that the invitation is to all, but we submit to God's plan. We don't dictate how God does business. We don't tell him what to do. We are sinners that have been saved by a king, and we are in no position to dictate to him how he operates. And so this man has been confronted. He's speechless. He's guilty before the king. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. That place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is where Jesus is given a stern warning. If we were to go back to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, there are many that will come to me in that day and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, well, we were doing miracles and we were preaching in your name and we were doing all of this stuff. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Get away from me. You weren't going about things the way I instructed you to. You're a false believer. Um, if you'll turn back 
with me also to Matthew 5.20, looking at this clothing of righteousness in the Sermon of the Mount, chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus, in the very beginning of the, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so the hearers during that time, they would have been absolutely stumped. How can our righteousness exceed the Pharisees and scribes? The Pharisees and scribes were the religious leaders. They had everything down pat. Externally, they looked like they were the most righteous of all. In fact, Paul, when he tells his testimony about being a Pharisee, he said that he felt that he was blameless as far as the law was concerned. And so these common people hearing Jesus saying, if I want to enter the kingdom, how can my righteousness exceed the righteousness that they have? And if you'll turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul, this great Pharisee, I think he explains what this robe is that this, this man was lacking, this robe that we need to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read that he, that's the Father, made him, that's Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is a great theological truth, that this is the gospel. As we, as we are gonna, we're going to end in communion here, and if you were to follow the, the themes of, of meals throughout the Bible, the Lord's Supper is really all about this righteousness that's been given to us. It's this foreshadowing of this great banquet that we're going to celebrate. And we're told that when we take communion, there's, the, there's a little cracker, there's a little juice. It's symbolic. It's a memorial that we remember what happened to Jesus on the cross. And we say, yes, that Jesus died for me. My sin separated me from God. Jesus died on the cross, taking the punishment that I deserved. The, the juice is this new covenant, the, the life that we have in him. It's a beautiful picture. Um, if you'll turn with me, we're back in Matthew, if you're holding your place. Just turn a few chapters over to Matthew chapter 26. And as Matthew develops, as we get to the Lord's Supper in a few months, in Matthew 26, verse 26, we read, while they were eating, Jesus took some of the bread and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take it, take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But let's keep reading to verse 29, because this parable about this great feast that's coming, look what Jesus goes on to say. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so there's this picture. This is on 
This is the night in which he's betrayed. It's, it's his last night on earth before he would be crucified. And as he celebrates the Passover meal with them, he takes the cracker and he says, remember this. This is my body that was broken for you. This is, my, this is the wine. This is the blood that will be poured out for you. This is the last night that I'll drink a glass of wine or a sip of wine until I see you all in the kingdom of heaven as we have this banquet feast. Then my lips will taste uh, the fruit of the vine again and we'll have this great party. It's this beautiful, beautiful picture. Erdersheim, who was a, a Jewish man who converted uh, to Christianity, he wrote a wonderful book called The Life and Times of the Messiah. And concerning this section, his last paragraph, he writes this, Thus side by side, yet wide apart, there are these two, God's call and God's choice. The connecting link between them is the taking of the wedding garment freely given in the palace Yet we must seek it, ask it, put it on. And so here also we have side by side God's gift and man's activity. And still to all time and to all men alike, in its warning, teaching, and blessing, it is true. Many are called, but few are chosen, which is the very last verse of this. The invitation goes out to all humanity. And in this story, all we see is those who are the called ones, those who come, those are the ones who responded to the invitation and accepted the invitation. And so this is, this is Christianity, that Jesus died for you. To receive this gift, it's simply believing. There's no work you can do. And for those of us who have believed, communion takes us back to the core of Christianity, that it's not about works. It's about everything that he has done for us. And so today we're going to take communion. Today we're, we, have a, we, we have a situation on our hands. We haven't done communion in, in, since we rearranged the chairs. And so I've kind of been delaying communion, trying to figure out how can we do this because we used to come forward, but there'll be too big of a traffic jam here. So I can see you guys all ready to fight to come up here. But instead, I'm going to have the four guys that I talked to earlier, they're going to come up. We're going to have to go old school how, you know, we're going to pass out the elements to you. Um, so the guys can come up here. Um, the worship team's going to come up and, and, and play a song as the elements are going. Uh, take your cracker, take your juice, and... and uh, and hold on to it until after the song, and then we'll take communion uh, together. For those of you, one of my dilemmas is because there are a couple people who are, are gluten-free or allergic to gluten. Um, they're little plastic bags. Those have the gluten-free crackers in them, so that's what they are. So um, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a song, and then uh, grab your elements and hold on. Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful story of... Um, of this wedding feast. Father, I thank you um, that you've made clear to us that the invitation has been extended to all. Not of our works, but both evil and good are extended uh, this invitation. Father, I pray for those, Lord, uh, in this room, Lord, uh, who maybe haven't reached the place in their life where they've come to accept you as Savior. Lord, I pray that you would help them with their questions, their concerns, Lord, their journey towards you. 
And Father, for those of us who have responded, who have accepted this invitation, Father, we thank you uh, for the joy we have in Christ. We thank you uh, for this great banquet that we look forward to. And today as we uh, take communion, Father, we pray um, that you would help us to keep our eyes on you. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.